0: This is Window on the East, a podcast from BNE Intellinews. Subscribe at bne.eu. Welcome to the latest edition of Window on the East from BNE Intellinews. I'm Liam Halligan, Editor-at-Large. Today we're joined by Ben Aris, our Editor-in-Chief from Moscow, and also by Chris Weefer, a columnist for BNE Intellinews. We're discussing the G7 meeting in Japan and also the OPEC summit in Vienna. So, gents, we're starting off today discussing the latest G7 meeting uh, in Japan. Chris, what did you make of it?
1: Well, I think increasingly the G7 meetings are just a photo opportunity for, for politicians and uh, the relevance of G7, I think, has not been there for for many years and I would say almost since 2009 when the G20 started to become a more relevant forum. Uh, so th- now I would say G7, I would almost go so far as to say it is irrelevant. Um, it's. It, it, and this meeting, I think, proved it more than anything else. It was... President Obama on his sort of wrap-up tour. Uh, the Japanese, of course, pressing for condemnation of Chinese actions in uh, the China Sea, which, which really didn't come. And then statements of the obvious uh, from the the other mm-hmm. the other leaders. And I think you know another reason why the G7 is now largely irrelevant. And quite apart from the fact that russia's not there the world's biggest energy exporter as well as producer but of course the second biggest world economy china they're not a member of it so you know frankly i don't see how the g7 can have any relevance for the global economy when such major players as the brics countries china india etc are not part of it what was the view from moscow ben
0: for for the g7 did it look relevant or irrelevant
2: Irrelevant. Uh, I agree. I mean, sitting here in Moscow, um, of course, you know, we're on the wrong side of the sanctions fence. And one of the uh, the big, I don't know, lessons or, or illuminations that have come out of this whole showdown East and West <coughs> was the rhetoric coming out of the West saying, oh, but Russia's isolated. And yet uh, Russia's not isolated at all. All these sanctions have done, have catalyzed the, the BRICS to go from this, you know, marketing acronym to, to actually a real political body and they've um, they've all rallied together because <laughs> they don't like being dictated to by the West and the g7 is the epitome of that you know they're, they're, they're supposed to be a top table for global global leadership and and increasingly now that they're on their feet and, and increasingly militarily and not just Russia but the, you know India and, and China too is that they want to be taken seriously and that the world is divided, and you know the the greater part of the population now lives in the the non west bit, and moreover the combined the BRIC economies are now worth more than the west, so in that sense the g seven is, is irrelevant in so much it 's now the smaller part of the world, both in terms of money and people um, and so the the russia and, and its friends um, are looking to the g20 uh, and this is part and parcel of, of the um, uh, unipolar world that Putin's been banging on, but it's not just him. It's also, you know, the Chinese and the Indians are also um, in with this idea of unipolar. Do you
0: get a <laughs> Do you get a sense, Chris? That do you feel that sanctions could soon be lifted, or are we in for another year? Well, I think it's
1: now very clear from everything that's being said within Europe and the U.S. that the sanctions on this next renewal, which, as you recall, uh, the Europeans must decide on uh, renewal or not. in late June, which will probably be a decision that will be made at the EU summit on the 28th and the 29th of June. Um, all of the indications are that the sanctions will be fully rolled over, possibly this time for six months rather than 12 months. You know, so while I'm convinced that sanctions will be fully rolled over on this summer renewal, um, equally I think that the uh, commitment to maintaining sanctions longer term perhaps past January or or for more than a year, I think that's weakening quite a bit. You can see a lot of opposition within more and more uh, European countries. And also, I think that if we go back to G7, where you know, I suppose the threat depending on your perspective whether it's militarily if you're sitting in Japan or economically if you're sitting in Washington but China is becoming more and more of you know this kind of uh, scary kind of figure in, in the distance and to that extent the last time I was in Washington I got a sense that uh, those Washington insiders who unfortunately are still in the minority but those who do understand Russia do have a better understanding of, of global politics rather than the very narrow kind of beltway understanding that far too many in Washington have had for some time. But those who do understand it take the view that they really would much rather, you know, have less of a confrontational attitude with Russia because the bigger confrontation is coming and it's coming with China. and They really don't want are concerned about the fact that if they push Russia too far for too long, Russia ends up in the Chinese camp, and then you've got a very formidable kind of opposition block and they don't want that. So I think, if you like, real politic, to use that overused phrase of years ago, but real politic, I think, is something we might see in D.C. after the November election, And real politic means trying to bring Russia back in without... Of course, conceding everything, but but easing back in, and I think in Europe as well. So, my my view is, sanctions will be rolled over in uh, in, in the next uh, month. I am particularly keen to to see. What will be the tone of the comments from the European leaders? Will it be a harsh tone, uh, which I think will be, you know, met with equally harsh dialogue in Russia? Especially bearing in mind the Duma elections are coming in September. What I'm hoping is that the tone will be milder, will be more conciliatory, and will definitely leave a door open. Perhaps in six months' time, then I think that is something we we can live with, and that would probably be the best outcome, in my opinion. Ben,
0: do you agree with that? From where you're sitting, do you see sanctions now coming into their end game?
2: I do. Uh, I agree with Chris that they will certainly be uh, extended at the meeting coming up uh, um, at the end of the month. Um, however, the, the the softening of the tone has already begun, and you know what's going into this is that on the one side there's um, the business lobby. Who are losing lots of money, and the Europeans, unlike the Americans, are heavily invested into Russia, particularly, which has been one of their most profitable markets. And I can tell you that the business lobby, particularly in, America, um, in uh, Germany, uh, has been sort of smashing at the door of Merkel, trying to make it back down. And just yesterday, um, Steinmeier, the foreign minister, German foreign minister, was at a, a Russia-German conference um, in Potsdam and introduced the idea of of, um, phasing out in in stages the sanctions on Russia. And on the other side of the argument has been Ukraine's total failure to actually live up to its obligations. I mean, the bits with timelines, deadlines in the Minsk II agreement, specifically changing the constitution before the end of 2015, holding regional elections, which admittedly are very difficult to do, and signing an amnesty uh, bill. It's failed to do any of those. And on the elections front, um, you know, they're now saying it's not possible for two years, uh, which means that the whole thing is dragging out and there's no end in sight of how do we get out of this. And I think the Europeans are increasingly thinking, you know, we started off this welcoming our Ukrainian brothers into the European fold, despite the fact we were never going to let them join the European Union, despite the fact that their NATO membership is not on the cards. And now we can't get out of it. Uh, Ukraine has failed to reform, it's failed to fight corruption, and is sitting there and asking for more and more money, which the European Union is very reluctant to give. And everyone wants an end. They want to go back to business as normal. And secretly, the, the businesses are pushing very hard for that because they're losing money in the yeah. government. Uh, can, can I add just one
1: that uh, follow on from Ben? What I'm hearing more and more is that the Russian side is basically saying to Europe or, and to the US that look, we're not looking for all the sanctions to come down. I mean, they think they'll have to be practical. First of all, of course, we know the Crimea module will stay indefinitely because Crimea is not going any, anywhere. But uh, Russia is saying that they don't; they're not looking for all the sanctions to come down immediately. What they desperately want, I believe, is for at least an of financial sector sanctions. Um, Even 30 days back to 90 days allowable credit would be enough because the problem with the financial sector sanctions above all others is that when financial sector sanctions were imposed in August 2014 uh, against the state banks and a couple of other big state companies, the effect of it was that... Like almost every risk manager in every trading house and corporate sit- institution in the West basically said, that's it, we're closing the door in Russia. And so there was this enormous voluntary expansion of sanctions against uh, Russia on the back of the financial sector because of the concern over SWIFT and things that were talked about at the time. So th- the hope is that if there's an easing of financial sector sanctions, uh, which is perfectly doable... You know, even as Ben says, even with Minsk being a couple of years away, you keep the others, you open the doors, encouragement. The hope is that that then would equally have a a disproportionately positive effect on a, a voluntary basis and would allow like relatively normal business to resume, it would reduce the fear factor that's preventing yes. a lot of people dealing with Russia. So so that's really all we're looking for is a first step that would represent passing the high watermark and sanctions. And then I think Russia would be would live with sort of an easing over the following couple of years. But there needs to be that first step in financial sector sanctions.
2: But Chris if I may ask, don't you think that the financial sanctions would be the very last sanctions to come off? I mean, the trade sanctions that are in Europe, those could come off uh, pretty easily because the Europeans are in charge of it, but the financial sanctions uh, imposed by the states are effectively global because everybody has a branch. Sure, in America. And yeah. they're in charge of those, and they're, 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 America seems very reluctant to back down on this fight. Uh, as you said, they don't really understand what they've got into, but they have nothing to lose by spending this out. And so they're going to be – and moreover, doesn't it take a vote of Congress to actually undo the sanctions, where in the European union you actually have to vote to renew them, or, uh, automatically otherwise?
1: No, actually, that's uh, – well, first, let me come back to the question about financial sector sanctions, but just to clarify the point on, on the structure of sanctions, because a lot of people, you know, point to the fact that how long it took for Jackson Van Eck to be removed as an example and Jackson Van Eyck 1974 course, was, yeah, but, uh, but Jackson Van Eyck was, uh, was something that specifically was put in place by Congress and therefore needed congressional votes to remove it this is not the case with US sanctions these are a, a, a president an administrative uh, order and therefore are at the entire discretion of the president and the White House uh, consistently makes the point that their sanctions are scalable. In other words, while on the one hand, of course, they can toughen the sanctions and add more, they also make the point that they can start to reduce them in stages as they wish. They do not need congressional uh, or approval, uh, which means, therefore, again, when you look, trying to perhaps make a more optimistic assumption, and let's just go there for a second, then the window of opportunity for for tweaking the sanctions perhaps you know this kind of easing of financial sector sanctions that I mentioned Um, that clearly would be between election day and inauguration day as uh, President Obama sits with his his successor and they try and figure out what are priorities and what they can do but that's kind of where people are hoping for that window of those two months and if that's passed and nothing happens then you probably wouldn't expect anything for at least another 12 months but back to your point about Financial sector sanctions. Unfortunately, uh, what you say, maybe correct, but but it is the only sanctions that the Russians are concerned about. They really, I think, are much less concerned if trade sanctions are removed. Because remember, uh, one of the remarkable stories about Russia in the last couple of years, which is also, of course, very very bad, but one of the remarkable stories is that the country has paid down. 250 billion dollars of external debt because they had no choice they had to go and call Turkey and at the current exchange rate that's about somewhere over 20% of GDP the country's exported you know a fifth to a quarter of GDP in two years and didn't go broke I mean it, it's, it's word resilience is being bandied around a lot but it's a very appropriate word but having said that surviving is one thing getting back to growth requires normal access to capital to financing and my fear is that that really won't happen in the scale that it needs to until financial institutions and risk managers are convinced the financial sector sanctions are starting to at least ease not come down but ease and I think even a 30 day to 90 day which would be a first step that I think would be enough to to move us in that right direction but yeah, I clearly take your point we, we could get some different easing but everything I hear is that the Russian side are saying to the European counterparts that's what we want 30 days to 90 days easing of financial sector sanctions
0: and, and just on that point of resilience, and this segues into um, part of our discussion on oil markets, how often have the three of us read that Russia needs a $100, $120 oil to break even on its budget, written by people that don't understand the implication of the exchange rate movement on the Russian budget, mm-hmm. uh, and yet we we average just over $50? oil in 2015 Uh, and what was the Russian budget deficit Chris 2% of GDP
1: yeah it was just just a little over 2% (laughs) I mean relatively
0: small completely manageable
1: Totally. Well, it's, it just costs about $22 billion <laughs> of reserves, and the uh, for the central bank's reserve figures are $365. So, it, it is a remarkable turnaround when you say, two years ago, it was generally viewed that Saudi Arabia was very comfortable, sitting pretty as it were, could ride this out, Russia would go bust a long time. And today, it's quite the opposite. There is a yeah. view, well, Russia's actually done okay, the Saudi reserves are rattling down at the rate of knots, because right. they are stuck with a fixed currency regime, and also they are stuck with huge social spending and defence spending, which they dare to touch without destabilising the country. They are clearly the ones who are now in trouble, not Russia. Uh,
0: from summits that don't matter then to perhaps summits that do, we've got OPEC coming up on June the 2nd, Ben. Obviously Russia isn't a member of OPEC. Is this summit making the headlines in Russia?
2: Um, not really, and the Russians said today that they're not going to attend even at the expert level that they're they're going to ignore it. And there's been this talk about, you know, uh, coordination, cutting production, some freezing at January levels. But Russia just overtook Saudi Arabia um, last month in terms of the amount of oil they produce, a record amount. And I was reading that most of the OPEC members also seem to be increasing their production. And so I think up until now, all this talk about uh, production and maybe cutting it was simply an attempt to talk up the market which has been very successful in so much as oil is above $50 again now. And everybody's taken the line that, you know, all right, prices are down, but what we've lost in prices, we're going to make up for in volume. Um, Because the Russians are just desperate for cash because they have this horrible budget deficit problem. uh, problem. You know, Budget is stated to be 3% this year. We're looking at least 3.7, if not 4% deficit. And the only way out of that is to try and earn as much money as you can from pumping as much oil as you can. So there's no, there seems, and on top of that, you've got like Iran coming into the game and Iraq also boosting production. So no one seems to have any incentive to cut production at the moment. Um, and while oil is at $50, actually the Russian economy is not too bad shape. It could do with a bit more, but it has enough to function at the moment.
0: So lots of talk about increased production, Chris, OPEC increasingly incoherent, and yet We've come up through fifty dollars for the first time since November sure. in recent weeks, and a lot, a lot of credible people starting to talk about sixty dollars. How, how can you square that circle?
1: Well, it, uh, the first thing, of course, when we come to talk to, uh, about the oil price, uh, we, we've learned is that it is wrong to get sucked into momentum. And of course, you know, notoriously, of course, remember back in you know fifteen years ago, the economists covered that oil was going to practically ten dollar oil free. Uh, and then let's go to the summer of two thousand and eight, when it was one hundred and thirty or forty, and you had some officials from OPEC and Russia talking about two hundred and fifty dollar oil. And Goldman Sachs. Uh, and even more recently, come January, people were talking about you know Goldman Sachs were talking about twenty dollar oil, and now we're talking about sixty. So it's a bit like getting stock tips from the taxi driver. Uh, you know you're close to a turning point when things like this happen. Um, it's a, just very briefly. It's important to remember. You know what? Uh, what how the, why the oil price is it's where it is today? And, and Ben's quite right. The Russians play the blinder. On this one, uh, in late January, the oil price had dipped below twenty, below sorry, thirty. It looked like it was going down to the mid twenties at least, and you came, then the Russians came out with this suggestion about production freeze and a meeting and coordination, and it bumped it right up into the mid thirties on the on the back of that. And you know, clearly, the Doha meeting was a complete failure, as it almost likely was going to be. Uh, but instead, the, the day almost of the OPEC meeting uh, OPEC russia meeting you had a strike in kuwait which prevented the price falling back and i would say the last ten dollars are down to the canadian fire which has taken a million barrels of canadian production offline it's the fact of course that no oil in january and february has led to a reduction in u.s production yeah. Uh, which again is very significant, uh, and we've also had some attacks by the militants in the Niger Delta, which has taken three four hundred thousand barrels of Nigerian oil out. So there have been these, uh, what you would might call temporary factors uh, boosting the, the oil price. Albeit we seem to be getting plenty of temporary factors in, in sequence. Uh, so do so you think we're heading back down below fifty again then? That would be my sense. I would say, you know, by the end of the summer, and if you look at a graph, you'll see a very similar pattern last year where the oil price rose right up into mid-June and then rattled back about $20 into the mid-September. Now, of course, the, the caveat of this is that you simply don't know what's going to happen to the Canadian fire or... Or, or, or acts of terrorism or, or, or wars, etc. But it, it does seem to me that at $50 oil, some of that shut down U.S. shale production will start to reappear and that could be quite damaging. Um, secondly, you know, $50 oil, the Saudis are never comfortable with, with uh, they've made quite clear that they're not comfortable with $50 oil because of the fact that it encourages more investment into, you know, like the Telsa motor engine in, into U.S. Yeah, production. Yeah. It makes it easier for the Iranians Etc. So, all the indications that I get from my travels around the Middle East relatively recently is that we could very well see the Saudis uh, this, uh, state, stating that they are planning to raise four to five hundred thousand barrels extra in the second half. And they can do that without spending money. That's pretty much, even though their capacity is maybe another two and a half million, in reality it's probably only about three to five hundred thousand because to do more would cost them billions and billions and uh, the, the, the only question mark I have, isn't it? We read in the papers today that the Saudis are considering perhaps a big bond offering as much as $15 billion. Well, they're not going to deliberately damage the oil price at Thursday's meeting if they're going to come with a $15 billion offer. So I think there's a big debate taking place in Riyadh right now uh, and the person driving that debate is Crown Prince Mohammed. He now is the power in Saudi Arabia. He's vying to be the next king. He's the one who's leading the very aggressive Saudi foreign policy in Syria. He's the one that had been leading the very aggressive foreign policy in Yemen. He was the one who completely undermined uh, the former Saudi oil minister Naimi at the Doha meeting. who has gone uh, now, of course. So, uh, well, he did the, the Crown Prince Mohammed undermined him yeah. naemi went to that meeting prepared to compromise with the iranians on some sort of a schedule and the saudi issued a statement more or less the same day saying unless iran absolutely agrees to production freeze we cannot and of course that was totally undermined naemi and he's been replaced by now uh, the head of aramco who reports directly to crown prince Mohammed. so it really adds the up- you said the unpredictability to this meeting. That There's going to be a great deal of interest in what the Saudis say at Thursday's meeting because it represents a complete generational shift in their approach to, to OPEC and to the oil market. Uh, and I think you're going to see a more aggressive uh, stance from the, the Saudis, with the only caveat being that if they do want to raise money, then they can't really you know, destroy the oil market before they do that, as it were. So. My sense, though, is if the Canadian fire goes out or is brought under control, uh, then I think that with more Saudi oil, with some U.S. shale coming back or at least slowing down. And remember, if last week the price of oil went up $2 briefly because there was a drawdown in U.S. stocks. U.S. stocks of oil have, nef- have not been this high since 1929. So wow. taking take down 2 million barrels on a 560 you know, a million stockpile? Nah, that's not going to
0: make much difference. The, the world still has tiny percentages. Tiny percentages. Yes, tiny uh, percentages. And Ben, of course, it's difficult for OPEC to become coherent, however aggressive the Saudis get, as Chris says, because if you've got the Iranians who sanctions are coming off Iran. They want to go from two million up to three, four, back to the heyday under the Shah of five, five million barrels a day.
2: Yeah, and this is the the fly and the ointment. The Iranians have said that they're, um, you know, are you crazy? We've just been under sanctions for whatever... Decades, and you're telling us to cut our own production now. Yeah. Now so
0: Sunni Saudi is telling Shia Iran that they want to, <laughs> want to cut production. Yeah. Yeah, now now, now you, a, you uh, nailed it right there.
1: Exactly right. That's why you could you forget about it. We could be very easily. We talked about earlier on about the coming to the end of G seven. We could very well be coming to the end of OPEC as it has been since '62. You cannot see under any circumstance how this group can function with any consensus whatsoever. From now on. do you
0: agree
2: with that Ben? Yeah, and they have the same, you know, the same agenda as the Russians. Is that they they need cash. Um, you know, now they're the began, and people talking about going there to invest, and they're free to to build. They want cash, and so they're going to pump as much oil as they can at any price to bring in the dollars, because they have a massive investment program ahead of them that takes in everything. And the oil is, is one of the hard currency owners that they can you know they can double the production straight away, uh, and that money will be consumed very fast in, in a long list of things to do.
0: Well, we'll leave it there. Fascinating discussion, gentlemen. Thanks very much. Ben Harris, Editor-in-Chief, BNE and Telenews. Uh, thanks for joining me. Chris Weaver, of course, Senior Partner at Macro Advisory. Do join us next time on Window from the East. I'm Liam Halligan.